If you're anything like me, I suspect that you would be quite tolerant of having one housefly buzz around your house, but that you would be very intolerant if you found a fly in your ice cream. Because in certain areas of life, a little irritation, a little impurity, some pestilence, it's kind of expected. But there are some things where impurity is absolutely intolerable like insects in our food, like hairs in our food. It just kind of grosses people out. And the same is true of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not particularly flexible. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, in fact, rigid in the sense that it is true and it does not allow for impurity to slip in unaddressed. The problem is, is that throughout human history... For many reasons, pollution has found its way into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's very important then for every generation to constantly be in the process of making sure we're restoring, coming back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we disallow impurity, false teaching, false notions of the gospel, to slip into our preaching, our teaching, and our belief systems. And this, I believe, is the fundamental purpose of the book of Galatians. Galatians is one of the New Testament epistles. We just finished a series of messages on 1 Corinthians, then you go through 2 Corinthians, and then you find your way into Galatians. Also written by the Apostle Paul. And the sermon series I would like to be, uh, preach uh, to you over the coming summer months is entitled, Reclaiming the Gospel. And what we're trying to do is make sure that we have a proper understanding of the gospel, that we can sniff out or smell out false gospels and deal with them uh, accordingly. So we're in June. Uh, I am going to be away on occasion this summer. I'm preaching in a few weeks at a church in Barrie. I'm preaching in Perry Sound the end of August. I'm speaking at a Bible camp for a week in July. So there's going to be some other folks that are going to be preaching here. But when I'm here, from now until August, we're going to be in the book of Galatians. And I hope that you find this a refreshing book, a challenging book. And for those of you that are new to Christianity, I hope that this is an informative book as you hear God's teachings on what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with a bit of a definition about the gospel. So the word gospel, it's found in the Bible, and we've actually named four of our books gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all gospels. The word also means good news. And the good news of Jesus Christ, we can frame it in a few different ways. I mean, Paul frames it a little differently than Luke does, and Luke different than Matthew, and Matthew different than John. But the essence of the gospel is as follows. That God is king, God is creator. He created our world, and he created us as his subjects. He was loving, he was benevolent, he was gracious, everything was good, but we chose to betray him, to become traitors, to run from his kingdom, to try to establish our own kingship. This happened way back in Genesis chapter 3, and we fell into sin. And sin corrupted us, not just in terms of our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes, but from there forward, every human being was born with a sin nature. So it's not that, not that I just have a minor problem, that I have you know, an ache in my side. 
that the doctor diagnoses, uh, diag uh, diagnoses as a tumor, but I am a tumor. There's something wrong with me from head to toe because of my rebellion against God and because I am an extension of Adam and Eve's sin. I was born with a sin nature, and therefore I inevitably sin. So, that's a big problem. But God, being benevolent and loving and gracious, chose to send His Son into our world, and before that, send His prophets and His apostles to invite humanity to rejoin His kingdom, to surrender themselves once again to His loving rule. And that necessitated, on our behalf, a recognition of our sin, of our inadequacy, of our rebellion, an admittance of it, and a repenting from it. And then an acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, an acknowledgement that He paid for our sin, a recognition that He is our Lord, and a surrender to His loving rule. And when a person then believes in that sense, repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, we say they are saved, or born again, or regenerated, or converted. Lots of different words the Bible uses. And then we start this journey on earth of seeking to act like Jesus and honor God and worship God, looking forward to the day when our salvation will fully be manifested and we will spend eternity in God's kingdom forevermore. That's the essence of the gospel. God is great, we're not, but God can make us great again when we surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved or spiritually uh, rebirthed. That's the gospel. The problem is, is that there are many reasons why we uh, tend to corrupt it or tend to distort it. I'm going to give you six reasons you can add to this list. There's probably a hundred of them. But here are six basic reasons why the gospel often is polluted and corrupted like the fly and the ice cream. The first one is because of confusion. These are in no particular order, but confusion. Confusion is a result of what? A lack of clear teaching. Or a lack of adequate teaching or maybe even a measure of false teaching at times. And it's just amazing to me how many people in our culture and society say, I'm a Christian. And you ask the question, well, what does that mean? Or what's your understanding of the gospel? And they're like, ah, like a deer in the headlights. And it's not that they don't have verbal skills or they know it and can't articulate. They don't know. They're confused. Because unfortunately, we tend to preach the peripherals of Christianity and forget about the core. And it's not that our church is the only one in the business of preaching the gospel. There are many, many others around the world. But there's a large swath of Christianity today that has not adequately taught people the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's a problem. Second problem is ignorance. Now, ignorance is not so much about inadequate teaching. It's about no teaching at all. And here's where we can maybe comment on those outside the church uh, when I grew up, down the road, St. Thomas, London, Ontario, that area, most people in our communities were multi-generational Canadians. You know, their, their ancestors may have fled America during the, uh, during the War of Independence. That's where you know, my ancestors, the best as I can tell, came over on the sister ship to the Mayflower, landed on the east coast of what's now the U.S., were loyal to Britain, took off to Canada. So we'd, we'd been here for a long time, and 
several other people in our community, the same thing. We had a low uh, percentage of uh, people from other countries. Most people were white, Anglo-Saxon Canadians. And there was more or less a basic understanding of church and a bit of an understanding of the gospel. But folks, times have changed very rapidly. And the vast majority of Canadians have no clue about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the mistake we often make is we enter into conversation with people and we assume, well, they must know about God or they must have heard about Jesus or they must have some knowledge of the Bible. They have none. Like most Canadians have no clue. They're entirely ignorant of the gospel. So we have to go back to like square one and sort of preach it from the ground up. So this is a problem, and when people who have come out of ignorance come into the church, sometimes the church doesn't do a great job in clearing up the ignorance by teaching them truth. So this is problem number two. Problem number three is human nature. We like to take credit for things, including our own encounter with Christ. So we may say, yeah, I know Jesus died for my sins, and blah, 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 but really it was just me. I chose him. I sought him out. I'm more or less good. And we just love to take credit for things, which I think is part of the false gospel that is often propagated in our culture. Fourth, we have the problem with rebellion. The Bible says the gospel is offensive. And our rebellious little selves don't always like hearing the words, you have a problem. Most often we hear the gospel from the mouth of another human being. And we really don't like it then, because we don't like to be told by someone else that we're sinners. But the faithful preacher of the gospel will tell you the truth about yourself. And that is that you're a sinner. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the book of Romans teaches us. But if we are hypersensitive and hyper-defensive, we can be like, yeah, I don't want to hear that. Fifth, false teaching. False teaching is a deliberate attempt to redefine the gospel. We'll talk about that this morning. Carnality. Many of us are looking for a gospel that makes me feel good about myself. And the notion that God is supreme, eternal, and I am his subject, and therefore exist to serve him. A lot of people don't like that. They prefer this paradigm. I'm the center of my world. Life's about me. God's this little guy that sits on my shoulder and helps me out, fixes my problems for me. And in that sense, we often fall into the trap of using God to feel better about life or to fix our problems rather than viewing him as the supreme, all-powerful creator of the universe compared to whom I am nothing. So this is a problem. So these six problems hinder the advancement of the gospel. The book of Galatians seeks to rectify that problem. Let's talk a little bit about the book of Galatians. So as I've mentioned, it's in our New Testament. It's a New Covenant book. Probably the earliest or the second earliest book written down in the New Testament. So many scholars would say Mark or Galatians are probably the very first books written. It was a book, therefore, that spoke very early to a problem in the early church. Early in the life of the early church, there was a problem with abandoning the gospel. So this says something, right? It can happen really fast. There are six chapters. Most of them are 
theological, but there are also some very practical chapters there, especially chapter 6, where Paul in his pastoral heart really wants the mature spiritual Christians in the church to come alongside the wayward ones and help to restore them in their faith. It was written to a group of churches in the Galatian province. There have been lots of articles written and commentators that have debated whether it was written to the northern Galatians, who were essentially, we'll just call them Irishmen. They were Celtic. The Celts had come down and invaded uh, Galatia a couple hundred years before Christ. So the, the northern part of the Roman province of Galatia was Celtic in origin, and the bottom were composed of more of the, the native Mediterranean peoples. So some people debate, did Paul evangelize the north or the south or a little of each? I'm not sure that's a particularly interesting conversation to have, but it is something that people have debated. Bottom line is, what we do know is whether it was north or south or a combination thereof, Paul was the dominant church planter in that area. So when Paul speaks to these Galatians, he's not just speaking to some people he'd heard of and didn't know and they were sort of at an arm's length. No, he saw their faces in his mind. Uh, he remembered the conversations that he had had with them. He had a personal relationship with them. And so we see while he's very challenging at times, like he gives them a few good backhanders. But he also has this pastoral heart for them. He loves them. He wants to see uh, them reclaim the gospel so that they can enjoy the fullness that uh, comes of life with Jesus Christ. So that, that's a little bit about the book of uh, Galatians. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Again, not particularly long, but there's just a lot of material in there. And now what I'd like to do is just sort of preach through the first uh, several verses of uh, chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 6. Verse Verses 1 to 5 is sort of the introductory material. You can read that for yourself. But I want to present to you five considerations. Five considerations. And the first one is this, that the desertion of the gospel, or if you will, the abandonment of the gospel can happen in a flash. It doesn't take 20 years. It doesn't take eight generations. The, the desertion or the abandonment of the gospel can happen like that. And therefore, we must always be on our toes. We must always be on our toes. Here's what he says. I am astonished. Paul saw a lot. Probably wasn't easily shocked or surprised by human nature, but this one astonished him. Astonished him. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It may not have been their intention to desert Christ, but the fact they had turned to a different gospel meant that they had abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ, and it happened in a flash. You know why it happened? It happened for the very same reason that it can happen in our lives. It's one thing to consider the gospel at the moment of our conversion. But you know what? The gospel message is meant to continue to transform us. And if the gospel message, brothers and sisters, ceases to continually transform you, you are vulnerable to abandoning it. That means if you say, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then you live your life on the proverbial hamster wheel of good works, trying to impress God to sort of keep his affections, you've misunderstood the gospel. That means that if you fail to live and breathe grace 
and mercy and kindness into your relationships with other people, you are failing to live out the implications and the essence of the gospel. There's many, many ways that this can uh, take shape in our lives. But this is why it's important for us to not just, okay, gospel is the moment I get saved, and then I'm going to concern myself with other things. No, the gospel should continue to enthrall you. Continue to encourage you. It should be part of your daily meditations. So that when you're reading scripture and you come to words like grace or mercy or salvation, you should never be like this, oh, big deal. There should always be an enthusiasm when you read words of grace and mercy and comfort and salvation. When you're singing, as Jennifer mentioned, those great songs, if your heart was not moved by the truths of those songs, I don't know what you were doing, but you weren't paying attention. And we're so easily distracted, right? Thinking about, I mean, I get distracted in worship because I get to think about the fact that I get to come up here and preach in a few minutes. So I have a good excuse to be distracted. But I, I try when I'm worshiping through song or I'm hearing prayer or when one of our worship leaders is reading something for us at the beginning of a service, I'm not talking to my wife or looking around or getting my cup of coffee. I'm here. I'm trying to be focused. I'm trying to be attentive because I don't want the gospel to just fly by me and no longer influence me. And it, sometimes it's almost as if we get bored with the gospel after we've experienced it. Now, it's true that someone can present the gospel in a boring way, I was telling one of my kids this week, maybe the greatest sin is when a preacher preaches the Word of God and makes it boring. Because it's not boring. But I suppose I may fall into the trap at times of making it boring. That's my fault. It's not the Bible's fault. The gospel should always refresh you and wash over you. So think about this. Did you allow the gospel to affect your life this past week? In terms of your worship, your relationships, your attitudes about your very self, if you did not, you are in a vulnerable position, just like the Galatians were, of abandoning the gospel. Many believers have abandoned the gospel. Sadly, it would be easier to preach this if this was more of a message of, well, the people of the world have abandoned the gospel. No, no, this is a message for the church. Paul's speaking to a church. No, you've abandoned the gospel. And of course, what this does then is this reminds us of the potential that even people who claim to have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ have of becoming apostates, either practical or theological apostates. This may raise questions of whether they're truly saved or whether one can be saved and lost. I think 1 John 2.19 helps answer this question when it says, they went out from us, this is people who have abandoned the faith, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it may become plain or evident that they were not of us. So the idea here is that you can convince yourself for a period of time and even more easily convince others for a period of time that you're a bona fide believer, but in actual fact it may not be true of you. It's not that 
True believers lose it, but there are many who claim faith but don't actually have it. And this then is a little bit of an uncomfortable warning to people. It's not God's fault. He's not, yeah, you're saved. I decided to take it back. I'll give it back to you, and I'll take it back. No, it's from a human perspective. It's possible to convince yourself that you believe, or to believe in your mind and not in your heart, or to forget the gospel and abandonment, abandon it and demonstrate that you were never transformed by it in the first place. When you are a new believer, it's common to question your faith. But if you've been a believer for a long time, you should no longer be questioning it. And if you are questioning it, it's because you have things to question in your own life. Because I believe it's possible for us to arrive at a point in our lives, early in our spiritual journeys, where we have full assurance. And full assurance comes when we are reminded by the Word of God that we have true saving faith, that we believe the proper gospel. When we've seen God do a work in us that we can't attribute to our own efforts. And when we have seen other believers say, I have seen a changed life in you. You have a different way of thinking, a different way of speaking. It's not that it's every day. Yes, we have failures. But on the macro level, I see a change in you. You're not the same person. And this gives assurance of faith as we see the work of the Spirit in our lives. But we have to say focus on the gospel in order for that assurance to grow. So we need to be aware of the potential to desert it. And then verse 7, the first part, we need to be reminded of the exclusivity of the gospel and champion it. Paul writes, not that there is another one. Like it's, it's kind of interesting. He, we talk about gospels and then we talk about false gospels because sometimes it's hard to come up with better language. But Paul's almost like, I don't even know if I want to call them false gospels. Like I want the word gospel to be so precious that I won't even blend it with the word false. There's just the gospel. It's not as if there even is any other gospel. It's kind of like that. He's just kind of guarding the true gospel because there is only one. We read in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name aside from Jesus under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's an exclusivity to the gospel. This doesn't sound very Canadian, does it? We live in a pluralistic culture. And we say, oh, we're different than the world. We're not influenced by the world, but we are. The subtle messages, you hear them enough. You start to sort of bend and flex and believe them. Well, maybe there are other options out there. Maybe Christianity isn't the only way. Maybe guys like Aaron Rock are, you know, they have tunnel vision. They're old-fashioned. You know, they're kind of narrow-minded. And everyone else seems to know that the times have changed. (laughs) And there's multiple ways to God. A lot of problems with that. We don't apply the same uh, thinking to to the law of gravity. It's either true or not. Uh, We don't apply it to questions of our own existence. Do I exist or don't I? We don't apply it to mathematics. I mean, two plus two can't be whatever you want. So in other areas of life where, yeah, things are true, things are false. It's either right or it's wrong. It's correct or it's incorrect. But when it comes to the gospel, people play the same game 
that's been played since the beginning of time, and that is, well, maybe there's multiple ways to God. Well, there's reasons to believe in the exclusivity of the gospel. The gospel proclaims that salvation is by Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. Now, if you just have Christ, faith, and grace by themselves, but you don't have the magical word alone, then I guess you can add whatever you want to it. But the gospel presents itself to us in exclusive language, Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Like, this is... This is biblical language. So to add a bunch of pluses after that, to add to the gospel, is, is, is nonsensical. It's also an offense to the work of Jesus Christ. So if we have God quite content by himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally communing together, not lonely without us, things went quite well for God before we showed up. God is self-sustaining, all-powerful, omnipotent. He creates us. The world is plunged into sin. God the Father takes and sends his Son, the second person of the Trinity, into this world to live among us, this little dust ball called earth. He's abused by us. He's shamed by us, publicly humiliated by us, nailed to a cross by us. Why would Jesus do all that if there's ten other options readily available? It just makes no sense. The, the dramatic and radical nature of God's presentation of the salvation plan demonstrates its exclusivity. God had to do something radical because there's only one way. Like if I was God or you were God, would you go to that extreme if there's ten other options available anyway? Why would you? It makes no sense. But God had to do something dramatic because he knew that we were dramatically lost. Third, not only should we be on guard against the desertion of the gospel, uh, we need to champion the exclusivity of the gospel, but we need to be on guard against any distortion of the gospel. Now, at first here, the word distortion might not sound that much different than desertion, but I think it is. And in fact, I think distortion is more dangerous than desertion because desertion is black and white. You either believe or you don't. But distortion, where you introduce subtle changes, you redefine, you twist. The reason why that's dangerous is because many people won't pick up on it. But Paul says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They want to twist it. They want to introduce new concepts to it. And you should always have your antennas up when someone teaches you something that you've never ever heard before and no one, ever, no one else has ever preached before. This is how cults always start, by the way. You have some guy who claims to be a Bible scholar and he finds something in the Word of God that no one's ever heard of or read before. And his whole denomination is founded on those kinds of things. And I think it flows in part from boredom. I've got to find something new today. And I got to put a new, little, little bit of parsley on the gospel, a little bit of spice in the gospel, sort of sauce it up a little bit. Oh, I just found something that no one's ever seen before. Or they round off the edges because they want to be popular and make it more palatable to their audience. Here are some common ways that the gospel is distorted a failure to preach judgment, a failure to say, yeah, the reason why you need a Savior is because you're going to hell. 
there is a place called the lake of fire into which hell and death will one day be dumped. And you're going to be part of that. And it's going to be eternal and it'll be conscious torment. And God is loving, but he's also a judge. His righteousness demands it. Like, read your Bible. God gets angry. God kills people. Jesus gets angry. Jesus issues words of damnation to people. But if you don't read the Bible, you're just going to have this image of this passive, sort of long-haired, hippie, chill, Californian surfer kind of Jesus that only says that which is nice and acceptable. It's shocking how Jesus is often misrepresented, even as a historical figure, apart from whether you believe he's the Messiah or not. Even as a historical figure, Jesus is often misrepresented in ways that you would not be allowed to get away with if you were representing the biography of some other historical figure. But you get to play around with Jesus' portfolio. And then the other side is when we fail to preach the love and grace and mercy of the gospel. So while there is hellfire and brimstone attached to the gospel, if you just preach hellfire and brimstone and you don't preach love and mercy and redemption and freedom and abundant life, then you've also preached a lopsided gospel. And we should find great satisfaction then in the fact that God loves us. It may be hard for some of us to believe at times, especially when we are overcome with shame. And I think you all know what I'm talking about. It may be hard for us to believe that God's love is actually unconditional. And that God loves his people even when they rebel against him. But he does. He does. And that's part of the gospel. Or when we fail to preach atonement. So atonement's the doctrine that there's a... There's a, a problem with me, and there's perfection in God, and God needs to deal with my imperfection by substituting himself for me. By, I'm the criminal, so I did the crime, I should do the what? Time. But God comes in, he does the time for me. This is the substitutionary atonement message of the gospel. But that's often downplayed or forgotten about and instead we fall into the trap of the moral substitute. I do bad things, Jesus steps in and shows me how to do good things, so I step back in and follow him. And then I do bad things and he shows me how I should do it, and so I just follow him. This is a moral gospel which downplays the need for an atonement. What I don't need to have my language fixed and my actions fixed and my attitudes fixed first and foremost. I need to have my sins atoned for. And when my sins are atoned for, then I can begin the journey of having my attitudes and my actions and my words and my mindset and so forth fixed. But if you don't preach the atonement, then you're just preaching a Christianized version of Islam, a Christianized version of Reformed Judaism, a Christianized version of Hinduism. Here's your list of things you need to do in order to act like the one that you claim to follow. And that's not the gospel. Or a failure to preach the depravity of man, specifically the total depravity of man. We still have these notions that we are not really as bad as some people think we are. And again, it's not just that we have a tumor, we are the tumor. 
there's something wrong with me from the inside out. This doesn't mean that I am incapable of doing good deeds. The most terrible people in history, like Adolf Hitler, I'm sure did some good deeds. But there is something wrong with me, like deep down in the core of my being. It's called depravity. And it is my depravity then that disallows me from doing anything good which is meritorious or earns me gold stars in the eyes of God. So the depravity of man basically says, no, I don't have a free will. I'm not half right, half wrong. I am totally depraved. I am in bondage to sin, and it's only the gospel that can free my enslaved will and give me a propensity, a desire, an attraction to the things of God. I need to be transformed from the inside out. And then we have a muddling and a befuddling of the doctrine of justification and sanctification. So justification, that's all God's doing. He says, you are now one of mine. Jesus' atonement is being applied to you. Your spiritual crimes have been wiped clean. You are mine. That's all of grace. I don't contribute to that. Then I start to begin the journey of acting like Jesus. But when we mix those up, or we blend those two together, and we say, no, no, the means of being justified is by getting into a baptism tank, or coming to church, or acting like Jesus. Then we've mended, or, or, or blended, muddled and befuddled justification and sanctification, and we end up with a works-based approach to God. And this is also a false gospel. Then we have prosperity preaching, the preaching that basically says, Hey, come on over to Jesus' side, and you're going to get rich, and you're going to live a long and healthy life, and you're going to be prosperous. Now, I think as a general, general, very general proverbial truth, the more you follow God, it actually does help in those other areas. Like God has a few tips in terms of how to take care of your body, which help. How to take care of your finances, which help. How to resolve conflict, which help. So as a general rule, yeah, you follow God, Missiologists, people that study missions, call this the principle of redemption and lift. That when people groups are redeemed by the gospel, they tend to pop up at least one economic rung. They tend to pop up one educational rung. Redemption and lift. When you are redeemed and your life begins to follow the teachings of Christ, yeah, there is a measure of prosperity that often comes, but it's not guaranteed. Because some really dynamic Christians have come to faith and died like the next day or died young or been martyred for their faith or died in total poverty. So there's no automatic, oh, come to Jesus, your life's going to be fixed message in the gospel. So these are distorted gospels which we must be vigilant in terms of uh, hearing, weeding out of our mindsets, our preaching and our thinking. Fourth, Let's talk about God's response to false gospels. Does God just sort of give you a little slap on the wrist? Does he take a gold star back? Does he make you feel bad for a little while? No, no, it's way worse than that. God curses contrary gospels. And I put gospels in quotes because, again, in line with Paul's teaching, they're not real gospels at all. Here is what God says. By the way, if I repeat myself, that means it's important. If I repeat myself, that means it's important. Notice that verse 8 is repeated in verse 9. 
This is not a typo. This means it's really important. But even if we, an apostle, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And he repeats himself. But as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. No one's beyond the curses attached to false gospels. And yet, why is it, why is it that there is a trend in the modern Western church that says, don't ever, don't ever name false teachers in public. Don't say it. You might get sued. Don't say it. People are going to leave your churches. Not very Canadian. Don't name them. The Bible never names them. Yeah, they do. Biblical books do. It's not going to be too many chapters from now. We're going to see Paul name one of his colleagues by name. How would you like to have your name eternally recorded in the Word of God as a bad example? Okay. This is why nobody names their kids Judas. Right? But we still name our kids Peter. But Peter fumbled the ball. Fortunately, he was restored. There's many instances in the Bible where false teachers are actually named. And they're still 2,000 years, 3,000 years later. Their, their names are in there. Like, that's just like the worst ever. But that's the case. There's a trend to say we should never call out false teachers. I've, I've had people say this over the years. You shouldn't have named that religious group because I know someone in that group that's actually a genuine believer. <laughs> you shouldn't have named that preacher. You shouldn't have named that person. Well, just trying to be biblical. If Paul did it. I think I can do it. But there's a trend, right? So what's God's response? Let that person be accursed. Now, the word accursed is a, you know, that's, that's a bad word, but it's actually worse than that. It's the word anathema. It means let him be damned. I think you'd feel a little uncomfortable if someone came up to you and said, I hope that you're damned, or you're going to be damned. You'd be like, well, that's about as offensive as it can get. But that's what Paul says. Let him be damned. Now, the reason for that is because if you believe, if you teach a false gospel, that means you believe in the false gospel, and if you're trusting in a false gospel, you're damned anyway. So it's a statement of fact, but it's also a warning that there are severe consequences attached to false gospels. And again, verse 8 and verse 9, they just say the same thing. So how then do we even know what the true gospel is? Well, it's the one the apostles gave us, he says, if it's contrary to the one we preach, so it's apostolic in nature, it's in line with what Christ taught, so if you're not sure whether or not what you're being taught is true or false, well, you have a Bible too, so don't take my word for it, read it. And if Christ taught it and the apostles taught it, then that is what we call biblical Christianity. It's unfortunate that we have to now qualify Christianity with the word biblical, because there's a lot of aberrant false Christianities, but biblical Christianity is what we're looking for. When you are tempted to desert or dis uh, distort the gospel, maybe you need to ask yourself this 
sort of internal question, uh, who am I trying to please? And this is the question that Paul raises in verse 10. Uh, for, I, uh, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? So he's challenging them. He wants them to s- stick with the real deal. And, you know, they may be asking, well, why is he doing this? Uh, or they may even be resisting. We don't really like you, Paul. You're kind of being a little heavy-handed here. Uh, uh, you're not a very nice guy, Paul. And his response is, oh, well, uh, I'm not trying to please you. I'm trying to please God. In fact, he asks the question, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Likewise, we must defend the gospel regardless of what other people think. In all honesty, we're all concerned about what other people think. And if you say, I don't, I don't care what anybody thinks, I think you're a liar or you just really don't understand yourself because we're communal beings and we do, to varying degrees, care what other people think. Some people care what other people think too much, though, and some people care what other people think to the point they're willing to tweak or modify or distort the gospel message in order to pacify people or round off the edges. So this can take place in churches with guys like me, It can take place around the water cooler at work when people are asking you about your faith and you're sort of rounding off the edges and you just describe your church along the lines of its programming or you're preaching a lopsided gospel. Uh, It can take place in academic circles, in theological classes, in our marriages, in our families, where we fail to preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ without any corruption attached. And so, at the end of the day, it should be true of all of us, at the end of the day, that we don't really care what other people think when it comes to our commitment to the gospel. Because at the end of the day, as much as I like to have a relationship with you, I'm far more concerned about my relationship with God and honoring Him and my eternal state and being the person that He has called me to be. And we have to fight against our incessant desire to be loved and liked by people, more than we're often concerned about honoring God. We, we adults, for those of us that are adults in the room, we often look at teenagers, we're like, oh, it's all about peer pressure for them. You know, they're so influenced by peer pressure. Give me a break, we all are. Okay, even as adults, we're concerned about keeping up with the Joneses, okay? And it's hard to keep up with Jordan and Jenna. But we're all concerned about keeping up with the Joneses. We're all concerned about being liked and appreciated And unfortunately, sometimes we are more concerned about what other people think about us than we are about how the degree to which we're honoring God. And I I just think we need to constantly be in a state of maturing and being people of conviction and finding our truest identity. Your identity is not found in what I think of you or your spouse thinks of you. It's found in your encounter with the living God. And I want to frame this from the other angle too. And that is that I don't want you to believe what you believe just because it's popular at Southwood to believe that. And I don't want you to believe what you believe because, well, Aaron believes it and he's a compelling personality. Or I believe that because my favorite preacher online believes that. Or I read a book on it. This is not a good reason to believe what you believe either because when I disappear or your favorite preacher disappears or the book you read, your favorite book goes out of print well, then you're apt to abandon the gospel because it's not really grounded in Christ and in Scripture. It's grounded in some personality or some church culture. 
So as much as we have a church culture here that I think does preach the truth and that we appreciate, I'm just telling you, don't believe it because I say it. Believe it because the Bible says it. And if I say something that's not biblical, correct me and correct your own thinking. Now here are some things and some reasons why we should be able to defend the gospel. Number one, because we've encountered it in Christ. I don't want to like exaggerate our encounter with Christ and make it something that sounds so supernatural and so profound that it intimidates or causes newer Christians to say, well, I haven't had that, so maybe I'm not a true Christian. But in some way, shape, or form, the Christian faith is an encounter with the living Christ. And therefore, we can say we know him. We commune with him. Secondly, because we believe it. And I I use the word belief on the level of conviction. We've been convicted by it. Third, because it makes sense to us. Like it answers life's questions. It makes sense out of life. It works. Um, one, of the, one of the greatest defenses, I think, of the Christian faith is its livability. Biblical Christianity is very livable. I mean, even if at the end of the day there was no such thing as God and you lived the Christian life, you still would have lived a pretty successful life because the Christian life is a livable faith. It answers the questions. It helps you resolve conflict. It gives you perspective on yourself and finances and priorities and self-care and your relationship with others. It answers that there's no holes in it. And if there are holes in it, it's simply because we haven't studied it enough. But it's a, it's a consistent worldview. A fourth, because we've been transformed by it. We should all, those of us that know the Lord, be able to say, you know what? I can identify specific things in my life that have changed that I can't attribute to my own doing. It's got to be God. We should all be able to testify to that. And fifth, because we believe in biblical authority. Biblical authority, we could preach on this for a long time, but biblical authority is buttressed up. It's, it's hemmed up in several ways. It's historical. We have the historical arguments of Scripture. We have uh, fulfilled prophecy where one writer prophesies and centuries later or decades later it comes to fulfillment with great precision. We have uh, the preservation of Scripture, the unchangeable nature of Scripture. We also have a personal argument at our disposal, and that is that the true believer will at times read the Word of God and it's just black letters on a white page. Okay, I learned something today. That's interesting. But we also have the gift of what's called illumination. And that means that there will be times in your Christian journey when you're reading something in the Bible and it's as if I'm speaking to you right now. In fact, better yet, it's as if it's just you and me in a side room and I'm speaking directly to you. It's like God takes a big yellow highlighter and he's highlighting it as you read it. Or it's like the words come off the page and they illuminate your mind to something that is true about you. Or it speaks a word of hope or caution or promise directly into something that you're thinking about or in need of at that precise moment. And this is why we say the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts not just through the meat, but right into the marrow. It exposes you to who you are. It exposes you to who God is. And at times it stings like the jab of a sword in battle. And at times it heals like the skilled hand of a surgeon removing uh, a cancerous growth from you. 
But there's this sense in which it's living, it's active, your mind is illuminated, you're washed over by it. And there's a transaction that takes place between this object, this book, and your soul, and that you're fed by it. And that's the illuminating work that the Holy Spirit has gifted us with. And while that may not work in a debate with an atheist, you know it to be true, and it shores up your faith and enables you to believe in the accuracy and authority of Scripture. Church, here's four questions I want to leave you with as we conclude this teaching this morning. Number one, can you articulate the gospel? Can you actually speak it? Can you put it together and present it to an unbeliever? If you can't, I would encourage you to learn that skill. Secondly, do you believe in it with conviction? Some of you may be here today and you're like, well, I believe in it because I was taught it. I guess I've given intellectual assent to it. But have you put your faith in it? That's biblical belief. Third, can you defend the gospel? Peter said to the church, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope. Notice reason, hope, mental, emotional. For the reason, for the hope that you have, but do so this way. Not like a jerk, but with gentleness and respect. Fourth, is it still transforming you? And let me just frame that a different way. Did the gospel make a difference in your life over the last seven days? Did it help you to improve your worship? Help you to handle a conflict? Help you to exercise grace? Did it speak words of encouragement and comfort about who you are when you've questioned your worth and your value? Is the gospel transformed you this week?